Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolitsich of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. Samo, you recently wrote a, a piece about uh, Africa, and um, the which is zooming out. People have been being bullish on Africa for a long time. And it hasn't quite materialized the way that uh, experts were were expecting. Why don't you give a little bit of the backdrop for for what's happened in the continent over the past you know twenty years or so, or help help people get come to terms with what what is the story of the of the continent, and then we'll get into the specifics of your piece. The recent uh, Bismarck brief was on uh, Nigeria, and it made broader points on the rest of Africa as well. I've previously uh, done pieces on countries like Botswana. Um, the West African region more broadly, and also a deep Bismarck brief case study into Ethiopia. So why are people interested in Africa and betting on it? As a region of the world, I think we should remember that it is the only one that is undergoing demographic expansion. So according to mainstream projections, the continent's population is expected to double to over 2.5 billion people by 2050. There are some reasons to be skeptical of this projection so that the actual population growth might actually be lower than what is proposed here. However, this population growth is also the main source of hope for economic growth in the near future. So in a very important way, people have been hoping over the last 10 years, especially that Africa will be basically the world's next China that it'll be the frontier of global capitalism. And you know, maybe this time, unlike in China, the investors will get to keep some returns. In a very interesting way, there's been a hunt for another place where you might see double-digit economic growth. The most recent study we published was on Nigeria, but I think Ethiopia is a very interesting parallel to this as well. Uh, Ethiopia is, uh, you know, Africa's second most populous country with a population of 115 million people. This is an ethnically diverse population as well. So it, together with Nigeria, each can sort of form kind of a case study that we can think about. Ethiopia was also explicitly called, you know, the Asian tiger of Africa, right? 2014, for example, was still an era where you might have Bill Gates tweet that, you know, he's surprised people are still talking about Ethiopia in the same breath as famine instead of talking about it in the same breath as China, because its growth at the time had persistently been higher than that of China. 
Nigeria is in an important way, kind of an artificial state. Ethiopia is arguably almost the best case for a large African country. Why? It's not a state that was created and drawn by colonialism. It actually has a deep civilizational history going back to the fourth century AD, at least, where it sort of has been, you know, ruled and been uh, an independent state. It's been ruled by native dynasties and has been an independent state this entire time. There's a deep civilizational pride in Ethiopia for the shared legacy. And this kind of civilizational legacy is something that connects the people of Ethiopia, at least the central regions, uh, much more closely than some of the other modern African states, which colonial powers did draw arbitrarily. Now, when you draw arbitrary lines, if you're already a strong state, usually culture, society, they morph around those lines. At the end of the day, France is arguably no more or less artificial than modern Egypt, right? It is arbitrary that Corsica be a part of France, especially since the language to this day is not French. And if you looked at Marseille two or 300 years ago, they didn't speak French either. However, the difference is if you have this post-colonial context where countries that used to be colonies and were diverse administrative regions are sort of told, you go figure it out. The result is that there's very low state capacity. There's a lot of ethnic conflict. There's a lot of sharing of spoils. Everyone sort of knows this story, but why might we even want large African states? So let's put an argument here in the direction in favor of countries like Ethiopia and Nigeria. Despite being very diverse, you know, there is a bountiful economic benefit to economies of scale. The giants of the world economically are what? China, the United States, to some extent, the European Union. Now, there is an effort underway within Africa to have some of the benefits of this continent scale, continent scale markets, continent scale infrastructure integration, without the drawbacks of bringing together politics that can result in civil war or dysfunction. Both of sort of the countries that, uh, you know, we can take as examples and studies, both Nigeria and Ethiopia have had in recent decades, a history of civil wars. Perhaps the African Union can be some sort of alternative. They can have a common market, free trade, maybe something like a common currency. However, there's no factionalism or war. Problem with that is that even in regions of the world with very high state capacity, such as Europe in the European Union project, the result has been relatively bureaucratic, where the common market and the integration of the common market and the benefits of the economy of scale are almost matched, right? Every, every advance you make there economically is almost matched by the inflexibility of a central common bureaucracy that doesn't really answer to any individual national government. So I am doubtful of the African Union as a model to help develop Africa because even the European Union doesn't work very well for Europe. That doesn't mean that regional unions of a certain kind couldn't provide the economies of scale. In this regard, I'm optimistic 
about the proposed East African Federation, which would be a cluster of states, including Rwanda, which currently does have relatively effective government, has had a peaceful recovery from the genocide of the 1990s, where the Hutu and uh, Tutsi people engaged in conflict and the Tutsis were, you know, to a very great extent actually killed. Um, the current president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, is Tutsi, but has really managed to carry out a national reconciliation very well, right? There's not currently a deep division between Tutsi and Hutu. And I think that is an achievement that overshadows any critiques people might have of him as sort of a strong man or being non-democratic. If you read the New York Times in 2010, uh, you would see praises of Kagame, the peacemaker. In 2020, if you read about Kagame, you hear about dictatorial behavior or monopolization of power. Yet honestly, especially for a small country like Rwanda, the talent pool is so limited and the mistakes so devastating that I think having a development and growth oriented, very authoritarian presidency might just be much, much better than attempting a system where power devolves. In a way, having a functional society where power sharing is the norm, where checks and balances are the norm, I think that already presupposes a certain level of wealth and development. If today, say, Singapore were to have squabbling political parties, right, contesting elections, sabotaging each other, engaging in culture war, uh, stoking the divisions in Singapore between Chinese, Malay, and Indians, the country could probably survive it. But could have Singapore survived that in 1960? And even if it could have survived that on the day, the eve of independence, right, could it have ever become wealthy? So I think there is a strong argument for focusing above all on making and the new states of Africa, these are still young states, only a few decades, become wealthy first and not worrying too much if there is a dictatorial element there, as long as whatever the you know, ruling authority is, has incentives aligned with development and respecting the rights of individuals and does not engage in ethnic conflict and genocide. A good example of this I think could be Botswana. In Botswana, it is considered a well-run presidential democracy. It's considered an excellent uh, example of respecting human rights. But every single president of Botswana has been the vice president of the previous president. So in other words, there's basically hand-picked succession. And if you run against the current vice president, there'll probably be fair elections but you're going to lose them, right? And furthermore, half of the presidents of Botswana since the 1960s have been members of the traditional Tswana royal family, which holds a, a large sway in popularity, right? The Tswana people are 80%, not 100%, but 80% of the population of Botswana. Imagine if uh, the United Kingdom dissolved the monarchy. However, the monarch still had a ceremonial title in organization and Charles III or before him Elizabeth II could just run with their own political party and just become the prime minister or the president of a British Republic. It would be very real to say 
in that country, the monarchy has not so much been abolished as repurposed to a different uh, form, right? The loyalty, again, of the Tswana people to their traditional chief, to the traditional king, is very high, resulting in an almost guaranteed voter base, which means that the royal family collaborates and works with the current ruling party there. So Botswana, in a way, did even better than Ethiopia. It's a small country. It's landlocked. It is, you know, very resource dependent. Low population density was significantly hit by the AIDS pandemic in the 1980s and 1990s. Yet it's never had a civil war. It's politically more stable than modern day Greece, one could argue. And, you know, there was never really a genocide comparable to the, you know, Hutu or Tutsi genocide in, in Rwanda, right? So it has advantages over both Ethiopia and Rwanda, arguably much more economically functional as a resource extracting country than Nigeria. Nigeria relies on oil exports for state revenues. Botswana relies on diamonds. Now, when you hear diamonds, you think blood diamonds, right? You think diamond-driven conflicts. But it was a rare government that in the post-colonial context, Botswana entered a partnership with the De Beers Corporation. So this is a, a European diamond corporation, basically splitting ownership over the mine 50-50. And there was no persecution of the white minority, nor any of the other minorities in Botswana itself, which is in sharp contrast to neighboring uh, Zimbabwe, where there was a redistribution of land and a redistribution of resources. And the result has been modest economic growth, overcomes these advantages, a relatively efficient civil service. Nigeria, you could almost argue, has a very inefficient government because it is a federal rather than a unitary structure. Precisely because in such a large country, with no deep tradition of statehood comparable to, say, Ethiopia or, to a lesser extent, Botswana, in this country you have to buy off elites. And one could argue that the reason Nigeria has not had a civil war since a region, the oil-rich region in Nigeria, tried to break away because the Igbo people there are, you know, they wanted to become an independent country, and all the other provinces also diverse, each dominated by different nationalities, ethnicities, tribes, religions, actually. There's a division in Nigeria between a Muslim North and a Christian and pre-Christian, or rather traditional religion South. Despite this division, all the other parts of Nigeria came together to stop the breakaway of the one oil-rich province or the most oil-rich province. The motive is obvious. You have to continue distributing the benefits of oil revenue to all the provinces to buy them off. So the result is there has been stability since that civil war. It's less precarious than, say, Ethiopia that does not have oil. But it is making much worse use of the oil revenue if you compare it to a smaller, more focused state like Botswana. Depending how the independence movement of Igboland would have worked out, I think that, you know, you could have had a Botswana in West Africa in the remnant of Nigeria. And then, you know, I'm not advocating for independence here. What I'm noting, though, is that, again, a more centralized government can actually be less corrupt and more efficient at 
basically exploiting the natural resources of a country to develop it. Well articulated. Something you write in the Nigeria piece is about how uh, the demographics and how Africa is seen to be this population bomb that is is going to continue to to grow and be significant in a large percentage of uh, the world's population. But maybe it's it's not as simple as, as we think, either on uh, individual country level, like Nigeria, or on the, on the level. What, why don't you uh, un- unpack what, uh, how we should think about demographics? Well, I mentioned briefly that, you know, mainstream estimates uh, put the population of Africa to reach 2.4, 2.5 billion people by 2050. This population growth is supposed to be paired with economic growth, and then people and investors everywhere can get their double-digit economic growth that they lost ever since China has started sort of uh, slowing down its rate of growth. The numbers, however, are inflated for a variety of reasons. Now, Nigeria is uh, Africa's you know, most populous nation. It has 140 million people. But if you were listening closely to how the oil revenue is distributed between the provinces in Nigeria, or if you read the brief closely, you would see that it's proportional to the reported population of each province. What does this do for the incentives of the provinces? Well, they're incentivized to over-report fertility, over-report uh, population estimates, not check population estimates very accurately, and especially not revise them lower downward. International aid is often also tied to population estimates. So in a way, if you can make an argument that there are 10 million starving people rather than 5 million starving people, that is, you know, for a kleptocrat, a fundraising argument. It is not, you know, this efficient delivery of aid. Uh, It is almost this sort of like, well, you try to, in some circumstances, overstate problems so that you can skim off the top. Right. Now, this is not to trivialize any of the problems, nor to trivialize any sort of developmental aid, any sort of humanitarian relief, merely sketching out the incentives of not very honest government officials. Nigeria's last census was taken in 2006, right? So that's where the population number of 140 million people comes from. There are now estimates that are much higher. And these estimates have been floating around and you might see them cited by the United Nations. They're in fact used in the United Nations projection that I mentioned for 2050. 140, 200, or let alone 400 million people, as some projections suggest should be the population of Nigeria. Well, that adds up to the population of Africa as a whole. The numbers in some other states are likely more accurate, but there are countries where a proper census hasn't been held in decades and where similar incentives to those at play in Nigeria play out. And for those reasons, I think that we might have, first off, a big overestimation of fertility in several African countries. So that makes a much smaller number 50 years out or 100 years. And secondly, in a, in a smaller number of countries, but I'm sure this is actually true of Nigeria and to a much lesser extent, Ethiopia. And it's probably true of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it's probably true of a few other countries. I think the existing population has already been greatly overstated. If I had to give an educated guess, I would say a realistic 
population for Africa in 2050 won't be over 2 billion, but it'll probably be more than 1.5 billion. It'll probably be something like 1.8 or 1.9 billion. That's still a massive population, but let's note that that's, you know, half a billion people lower than what's been projected. And, you know, to dig a little bit into it, uh, you know, this is not necessarily a fringe position. In 2013, the chairman of Nigeria's National Population Commission said that, you know, and that, by the way, is the state body that conducts the census. Uh, he publicly stated, and I quote, no census has been credible in Nigeria since 1816. So he's even including the 2006 census I mentioned earlier. Now, he was fired for that statement by the president. But I think it says something when, you know, the head of the, uh, the census body basically says, look, all of these censuses are at best guesstimates. They're not accurate counts of the population. In 2006, the census determined that Lagos State had a population of 9 million people. So Lagos is, you know, a, a great, a great city. So that's like actually one of the more developed and urbanized uh, parts of Nigeria. The state government, however, commissioned its own study that said the population was nearly double. So 17.5 million. So I think that illustrates the very strong incentive that state governments, provincial governments have in Nigeria to overstate their population. And then satellite imagery, when it was examined, favored the lower, the national census population number. So in fact, if you use techniques like satellite imagery and so on, and you take realistic population densities, it seems that these, uh, this country has an overstated population at least in many of the most populous provinces. The next census, by the way, was supposed to happen in May of 2023, but it was indefinitely postponed. Another statistic which might be relevant is that according to Nigeria's National Electoral Commission, 87.2 million people held permanent voter cards. But in practice, only 24 million people actually voted and this means that there was a turnout of 27.6%. It's realistic to sometimes have low vote turnout. However, that could also be a signal that perhaps there are fewer voters than was thought. And, you know, some of the voters who are assumed to not show up, uh, maybe they just don't exist. And that's sort of a funny inversion of what happens in Chicago, where there are votes cast that, you know, the voters don't exist. And here, voters are assumed to exist and they don't exist. And, you know, we have this anomalously low turnout rate. Hey, everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Hey, everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. I'm curious if you could outline 
further both the the bullish argument for Africa's uh, for the continent's place, uh, you know, uh, growth and you know increased influence in sort of the global sphere and the bearish case as well. I think the bullish case for the continent rests more on the development projects of Ethiopia than it does on the development projects of Nigeria. And what do I mean by this? I think that resource-rich economies are actually a decent way to become fairly wealthy if you have a lean and efficient government already. And the government basically can develop the resource, distribute the excess, and so on. You know, at the end of the day, the GDP per capita of Norway is substantially higher than that of Sweden because of the oil reserves the country has and the oil reserves that country exploits. The so-called resource curse isn't a curse at all. It's good to have resources. It's good to have expensive resources. The curse is in the low quality of government. The countries such as Ethiopia, however, might be a case where, to a great extent, the government perhaps gets out of the way sets up basic infrastructure, and it doesn't matter if the infrastructure is radically overpriced or if they have to pay off all of the ethnic groups that compose Ethiopia. Since the 1990s, Ethiopia has been kind of like an ethnic federation where there are regions that have a lot of cultural autonomy, and they were trying to sort of, in their own way, correct for this problem of artificial borders. Though, of course, in the Ethiopian case, no one imposed the borders of Ethiopia on Ethiopia. Rather, Ethiopia was itself a powerful, expanding imperial civilization uh, under an emperor, actually. Actually, under an emperor that claimed descendants, I think, from King David. This is through Queen Sheba and so on. And uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church claims to have the Ark of the Covenant. So, you know. I wouldn't encourage anyone to try to go Indiana Jones and verify this claim because quite reasonably the position of the church is that no one can gaze upon it and it's a sacred object. So let's respect that. But my point being, there used to be a unitary sort of imperial government. Then there was a communist revolution by a group called the Derg in the 1970s and 80s. They were Soviet backed. This group was then overturned in 1991 by this, you know, kind of ethnic federation coalition that was supposed to create a parliamentary democracy. So they were trying to create sensible boundaries within the country, try to govern it as a federation. So let's say that because they need to govern it as a federation, that the infrastructure costs balloon two, three, or four X than what they would otherwise. And there are important infrastructure projects there which I'll get into in a minute. Still, once they provide a power grid, once they build roads, once they through conquest or international diplomacy acquire a port, after that, the government doesn't necessarily need to do that much. Companies would naturally arise that would make use of the abundant labor of Ethiopia and the genuinely young population of Ethiopia, right? And the result might be a process it's not that similar to China, right? Because I'm not even positing special economic zones or charter cities or anything like that, nor am I positing that the government is extremely well educated 
and makes these like, you know, engineer informed investments. In one of the previous episodes, we contrasted the US government by lawyers versus the sort of, for at least a little bit, uh, China's government by engineers. You don't need to posit a government either by lawyers or by engineers in Ethiopia, but you could still have economic growth that I think would be something like Bangladesh or something like India, which might sound uninspiring, but there have been massive reductions in poverty in those countries. And it would be the beginning, not the end, of an industrial revolution. The key tricky thing, again, with development is, I think you don't have to have a very functional state to reach a kind of middle-income country level. Offshoring, outsourcing, the spontaneous local development, making use of economics of scale, making use of a large population that's, that's you know, young and there's a significant amount of unskilled labor. What country does that sound like? Well, Mexico is actually like that. And for Ethiopia, as well as for Africa as a whole, it would be a great success to be as developed as, say, Mexico or Turkey, which are comparable in GDP per capita. Now, hopefully, vicious cartel wars like those seen in Mexico, I, hopefully that doesn't occur in Africa, right? But at the end of the day, the bar needed to do something like what Singapore did, or what China did, or what South Korea did, or what Japan did, that bar where you actually go sort of from third world to first, I think that requires a more technocratic government approach. And I don't have a lot of hope, even in the bullish case, uh, for that happening in the large multi-ethnic countries of Africa, nor do I have hope that that will happen through some kind of African union. I do think some of the smaller African countries, if they come to approximate the sort of Botswana model, need not just be resource-dependent countries forever. There are ways and promising pivots to go from a bootstrap of a resource-based economy or an intense city economy that is benefiting from the growth of larger giants, like, you know, in the optimistic case, Nigeria, Ethiopia, even Egypt. You could have countries that are currently 10, 20 million people come to become city-states and accept lots of immigration from neighboring countries, fueling an economic engine that's closer to what Singapore has achieved or what back in the day Hong Kong achieved. Now, this doesn't need to even be done in partnership with any kind of charter city. It could just be a decently efficient, small group of people uh, taking over a government, keeping it stable, running it well, uh, preventing further coups or civil wars. There's really this very tricky situation where I think the overbearing uh, hand of a dysfunctional and extractive state, which I think might be you know, a huge problem for a place like Argentina, at least over the last hundred years, I think that model doesn't really describe the problems of Africa. The problem of Africa is almost, you know, inconsequentially weak states where 20 guys in a pickup truck can almost depose the president, or if not 20 guys, then 200 guys uh, in pickup trucks. And that in fact has been happening in West Africa. Emmanuel Macron and the French government are much less interested in the sort of neo-colonial venture that France has been undertaking since the formal end of its colonial empire in West Africa. So they tried to basically pull out of a number of African countries. This didn't go any better than when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan. 
the governments almost immediately imploded. And over the last two years, Russia's infamous mercenary Wagner group actually stepped in to provide services to these governments. So in a lot of these governments, they basically now sold off mining rights to basically Russian companies and paid the Wagner group to keep them in power. Um, and you know, this is very much an outcome the French didn't want. It's an outcome the governments the French were partnered with before didn't want. So the local governments were like actually imploring France to stay because for basically selfish reasons, uh, those in power wanted to stay in power and understood that they needed the French underwriting their state authority. In some other states uh, in the Sahel region as well, there's a significant risk of civil war. Uh, some of these places have uh, very strong Islamist groups, which are no longer as developed or funded as say ISIS might have been in the Middle East, uh, but certainly represent a serious threat. Nigeria, were it not for oil revenue, might actually be facing significant problems with movements such as Boko Haram and other Islamist groups. Now, Nigeria wasn't part of France's neocolonial sphere, um, so they weren't relying on the French government. They have the oil revenue to keep their coalition in check and to keep their coalition together and to prevent existential threats to the state. But they don't really have any consolidated center of power that could truly, say, focus on developing Lagos as an industrial center, right? So I think Africa actually is a great example of a continent where an entrepreneurial statecraft where a government's tightly focused on opening up ports and developing local industry are crucial and they could actually make a few first world countries. So I think in sum, my optimistic case for Africa would be a continent of middling large ethnic federations and nimble, small, very developed, perhaps eventually first world cities. And you know, those first world cities and small governments actually would benefit from the large middling federations sort of being middling. If you think about it, the golden age of Hong Kong and Hong Kong's autonomy versus China was not when China became well-developed like Hong Kong. The golden age was when China's GDP per capita was much more similar to Mexico and Turkey. I don't see any good way to break up the large states in a peaceful way to make room for smaller efficient states. I don't see a way to make the large ethnic federations actually be efficient governments of scale as say the United States is or China is or honestly, you know, even a place like Germany and France have their origin in sort of crushing regional diversity and making a national unified culture. I don't see a way to do that easily or efficiently, but I do see a way for modest economic growth that results in basically the last region in addition to India where extreme poverty persists, climb out of extreme poverty into being sort of the lower middle class of the world. And then having something like one to 200 million Africans also living in cities that are basically first world cities that undergo a more intense guided industrial revolution that climb the value chain, that retain political stability in a way not too dissimilar from, let's say, Singapore. You, you, ju you just mentioned China. Uh, you know, of course, China has done their Belt and Road with in, in, in Africa. 
talk more about how Africa has interfaced with the rest of the world or what is sort of Africa's importance in the broader sort of geopolitical struggle among great powers? I think that, you know, as always, there is an interest in some of Africa's national resources, which are important for this or that country, right? I mentioned De Beers uh, that mines in Botswana, for example. I mentioned, uh, you know, Nigerian oil exports. But I've also mentioned global capital wanting to find underdeveloped countries to invest in. Everyone wants another China. No one really politically wants another China, but they economically want uh, another bull market, another case where there's a lot of money to be made, uh, where you can offshore factories to. China itself is actually now looking into offshoring factories themselves into various countries. Africa seems a very natural fit for that. We could be optimistic about global economic growth if economic growth was good in Africa. There is also an important factor here, which is the alignment of powers in the Indian Ocean. And there is the factor also of what this uh, does for the Islamist movements globally. If Islamist movements came to power in a significant part of Northern Africa, or rather to be precise, Northern Sub-Saharan Africa, this could destabilize many of the relatively secular Arab governments of North Africa, and further could represent a base of operation for renewal of organizations such as ISIS or strengthening or even international coalitions of organizations such as the Taliban. So, that is sort of another importance, which is ideological and political, right? The final point of importance is not for international capital or for a possible and unfortunate renewal of this kind of global terrorism struggle or Islamism struggle that the world looked locked into from about 2001 until 2014. Mm -hmm. The importance for China is the ability to secure natural resources from governments that will be reliably friendly to China. One could say in China's pocket, right? This part of the world has relatively weak states. China is seeking governments that will reliably mind China's interests over Western interests. So it's not that there are not other parts of the world that are resource rich. In fact, North America is very resource rich. Russia is very resource rich. Brazil is very resource rich. China, however, would like countries around the Indian Ocean specifically that reliably provide resources to China, even if China were engaged in some sort of great power conflict with the United States. In case there's a war in Taiwan, wouldn't it be great if shipments of raw materials could make their way from Ethiopia or South Sudan or Kenya and then go into a friendly Pakistan where rail lines take it into China? completely bypassing all of Southeast Asia. That would be an immense geopolitical win. And from the Chinese perspective, the credible alternative would also mean that they would not be short on oil, they wouldn't be short on any natural resource, and that the US and other countries are less likely to challenge China over an issue like Taiwan or even other regional issues in the future. The other possibility is, well, Chinese popular opinion is greatly opposed to this, but there is some amount, some small amount of immigration happening from Africa to China. 
And there is an offshoring happening where Chinese factories, there is a move to various African ports. There's an attempt there. It's not clear whether it will be successful, but there is a world where a significant part of East Africa becomes part of the Chinese sphere of influence. And there is a demographic subsidy that goes from very cheap, unskilled labor in East Africa, building all sorts of industrial products in factories that are located in Africa, but owned by Chinese companies, right? So that is a situation where the profits of large Chinese corporations would be intact. The population shrinking of China would be ameliorated. And then possibly even there would be some limited amount of migration, maybe 20, maybe 50 million people moving from various parts of Africa, honestly, often as brides to help, you know, fill various service sector shortages in China, much as Japan now is moving towards accepting uh, migration from the Philippines and Indonesia and places like this to get, you know, nursery home workers and service and restaurant workers when they can't replace them with cute Japanese robots, right? Which some of the Tokyo restaurants do very well, of course. Yeah, yes, exactly. Segwaying to a specific part of Africa, how do we make sense of what, what's happened in South Africa, um, given all sort of the the chaos that's been there over the last, you know, in the last century and the last few decades? Um, and are there any lessons that can be more applied more broadly? Yeah, I think South Africa is a truly tragic example where, uh, you know, on paper, economically, there were so many reasons to be optimistic about it, uh, circa 1994. And of course, had this deep history of being basically an extension of the colonial empires, first of the Dutch and then of the British. Now, it would be too controversial to say that colonization or imperialism is ever an advantage. But let me point out that if you have to pick between being a puppet state of the USSR or the United States, you pick the United States. In a similar way, if you have to pick between being a colony of France, like say Haiti was at one point, or being a colony of Britain, like Jamaica was at some point, statistically and worldwide, the outcomes were better for uh, British colonies. The Dutch track record is a little bit more mixed, but the early Dutch uh, colonial empires had some of the same advantages of the British Empire. So South African theory could have been uh, a country after apartheid ended where you would have a few very well-developed cities. You would have firm rule of law that was maintained from the British era. You would have an impartial and high quality uh, civil service. And there could have been solid economic growth, not enough to erase any ethnic or racial differences in wealth, but enough to make everyone much richer. This didn't happen. The civil service in particular is a tragic example because it's not a great idea. You know, let's put it this way. It's too easy to blame apartheid, but I'm actually going to blame apartheid a little bit on the civil service here. What people don't realize is that the British dominated civil service and the British dominated centers of power within South Africa for a few decades basically suppressed 
the Afrikaans-speaking Boer people, the Dutch minority. The Dutch themselves, though they arrived on the continent in the 1600s, their descendants, they were conquered by the British in the Boer War in the 1900s. So back against this came this kind of populist nationalist pushback that eventually won elections in the 1940s. And only in the 1940s did they really assemble this apartheid system. In the 40s and later, did they build this apartheid system that people knew and critiqued. But the result of this was that the British service that they developed fairly well in neighboring Botswana, where local Botswana people as well were you know, educated and employed in it, was replaced with kind of a Boer welfare state, where the Boer people were preferentially hired into the civil service during the apartheid region. So even over English speakers, let's say, right? Even white English speakers. The result of this is that even, you know, and, and lots of things were mishandled, but the result of it is I think that in 1994, no matter who took over power, they would have to eliminate Boers from the civil service. Now, what was not necessary was the ethnic strife and hateful language and indirect persecution of the farmers of South Africa. So if I were to thread a needle here, much as it was correct for Estonians to fire all Russian civil servants after 1991 and you know hire basically Estonians or use computers, so it would be basically correct to fire most of the Boer civil servants who supported apartheid and not let them back into government. What is, however, incorrect is to go ahead and pursue land redistribution uh, directly or indirectly or slow walking it the way, say, neighboring Zimbabwe did and basically turn a blind eye to crime when crime targets the wealthy and prosperous minorities of South Africa. There's a very thin line between carrying out a political revolution that overthrows an ideology you don't like and persecuting a well-off minority, which no matter how they got rich, it kind of doesn't matter how they got rich, right? It doesn't matter whether they just you know worked very hard, educated themselves, or whether their distant ancestors like actually you know benefited or more recent ancestors benefited from unfair systems, right? What matters is that if you persecute people with wealth, you don't end up redistributing wealth, you end up destroying wealth. And I think that's, that's the crucial problem here. Owners taxation, imposing like racially diverse company boards, basically having like, you know, you know, we think DEI is might make a big deal in the United States. South Africa had super, super DEI, right? It had really intense social controls. The result of this is that a bunch of companies that worked fairly well, which over time, you know, which needed to become in an integrated Africa, needed to remove all explicit barriers, right? Become actually colorblind. The result was a lot of these companies kind of didn't do that necessarily, or rather did that, but in parallel, sort of government cronies were rewarded. So you had this toxic situation where after the purge, it's not that, you know, after you purge government officials of the previous regime, you don't end up empowering any sort of new technocratic elite, but you end up empowering people uh, and hiring people who want board seats and who want to have basically spoils and who want to run companies for their own benefit. And then on top of that, you cover it up with a basically nationalist ideology and you erase all the differences that exist between uh, the non 
uh, the non-white people of South Africa, to propose the simple story where you perpetually scapegoat the old regime for all its flaws, where you enrich the politicians who are your friends, and where to your voters, you never hold the politicians accountable, you never hold the corrupt executives accountable, but you continue to scapegoat this like small and ever shrinking, materially prosperous minority. So really, the truth and reconciliation in South Africa never happened. And, you know, maybe South Africa could learn something from Paul Kagame, who instead of dividing the Hutus and the Tutsis, who are plenty divided to the point of killing each other, actually made a point of, of unifying everyone. And, you know, it's not, it's not let bygones be bygones, but there were so many people in Rwanda that were complicit with the genocide that remained unpunished. And if you try to punish them all, you would have broken the back of the Rwandan state. So let's put it this way, in trying to redress a real historical injustice and effect regime change towards a different system of government, uh, South Africa broke the back of all its major companies, broke all its major cities, and didn't even end up with a colorblind society to show for it. What separates the countries who are able to decolonize or become independent and become you know, sustainable or, or, or become better off as opposed to uh, you know, less, less better off or maybe even worse off in certain examples? And you, you also had this Bismarck brief earlier this year about uh, the French pullback and how it led to a wave of coups that you alluded to earlier in this conversation. Why don't you share a perspective there? Well, I think first off, the worst thing for your country always is a devastating civil war. And the worst thing is a prolonged frozen conflict. This is as true in, you know, uh, Bosnia, Ukraine, Syria, Libya, as it is in any African state. So when we look around the world, even beyond Africa, the first order of business is avoid a civil war. The second order is avoid a corrupt, devolved kleptocracy, where what happens is regional governments basically try to compete for spoils, and there is no overall vision or success for the country. And then the third factor I would say is, no matter what the origin is of prosperous minorities, if you have a country that's already unequal, you have to work with the prosperous minority, right? You cannot just pursue their removal or their elimination, even if it makes for a better national identity, right? Even if it allows nationalism, the result is an immense destruction of wealth. And at its worst, it results in violence against those groups or their expulsion. So again, South Africa didn't do great on this, but it sure did better than Zimbabwe, no? Like Zimbabwe ran with the nationalism way further, right? And just actually took away all the land. And then if you look at Botswana, well, Botswana did better than South Africa and it's more resource dependent than South Africa too, right? It actually has less, had less industry, less development. For much of the Cold War, Botswana was in an unenviable position being stuck between basically communist revolutionary countries, you know, following their anti-colonial struggle on the one hand and South Africa and its apartheid sort of puppet states on the other. So, you know, Botswana was already playing at a disadvantage. So it's kind of incredible to see how well it's done since the 1990s. And then the final thing of note is it is only good to kick out a foreign power 
if you can replace it with a new strong local government. You are actually worse off if you just kick out foreigners without a plan. Now, this means that decolonialization is most successful when in the process of decolonialization, local civil service is built, a local civil service that survives independence. So instead of the, all the people being fired, most of the people are retained and that's politically viable that there is a power base that is local to the country. So it's not that absent foreign aid or absent oil or absent all of this, the government just implodes and collapses and 200 guys in pickup trucks or 2000 guys in pickup trucks can overthrow your government over and over again. And the final point here is that say, India and Pakistan resolved the risk of civil war somewhat. When independence was achieved, they very quickly became first two countries and then multiple countries, right? Bangladesh and Pakistan also separated. They used to be known as West and East Pakistan. So I think that for most of the planet, successes have been middling. And in the middle category, I would put India and Pakistan and, and actually no, India and Bangladesh do much better than Pakistan. So I put them in the middling category together with um, some, some other countries like Indonesia, let's say. And then in the top category, countries that did extremely well, I think the answer is, um, you know, countries like Singapore or countries like Cyprus. So very small countries tend to fare better, especially when they're oriented around cities. Large countries do well if they avoid civil war and if they avoid excessive persecution of market dominant minorities, basically. And then the failure cases, well, I would say that the failure cases in the great sweep of history are places like Zimbabwe, places like Haiti, to some extent also places like Pakistan, where Pakistan always tears on the edge of basically uh, collapsing as a country, right? Large swath of Pakistan territory are now basically controlled by Taliban and their allies. And, you know, in the case of a serious war with India, it's not clear whether Pakistan successfully remains a single country or fragments. That's well articulated. We're at time here. So obviously, the, you know, you've written several briefs about this that people should go read. We'll link to them. Obviously, it's a, you know, a giant continent with a, with a lot of history. But any uh, any any last words or, or or summary to our conversation that you want to, to to leave us with beyond just going deeper on the briefs? Africa is a vast enough continent that perhaps it's best even to think of it not as a single continent, but as three or four continents. I think the challenges that the different regions of Africa face are very different. Their history and politics is very different. Southern Africa, East Africa. Western Africa, and finally, sort of Arab Mediterranean North Africa, north of the Sahara, these regions have different destinies and operate in different regions of the world's economy. West Africa is tied to a relatively stagnant Atlantic system, where two very developed parts, North America and Europe, and one moderately developed part that's not growing very fast, Latin America, represent most of the trade that corner of the world could hope to engage in. East Africa holds the greatest promise because it is still part of a greater region, an oceanic region of the Indian Ocean, 
where globalization has not yet peaked. There is some amount of growth and benefit to be had still in Indian Ocean trade. The US and China trade now the most that they will ever trade. And any sort of globalization benefit of the Pacific Ocean has already accrued. The same is true of the Atlantic Ocean. And the Indian Ocean is an ocean where on its coasts are immensely resource-rich regions, very capitalized regions, and also very populous regions. So expect that a hundred years from now, the traffic going through the Indian Ocean will be two, three, or 10 times higher than it is today. And I don't expect the similar growth will be seen in the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean. That's a good note to, to, to wrap. Semo, thanks as always. Until next time. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine, the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen.